the Corps of Engineers. Engineers must be oriented and adapted to a multitude of tasks. The Army Corps of Engineers is raising the dam by eight meters. U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers lays out their response plan. We provide infrastructure assessment, temporary roofing, temporary emergency power. We help with debris assessment and removal operations. We also work with temporary housing. And he'll tell you there's no end to the types of services the engineers provide. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Building Strong Buffalo podcast. This is the place to get to know the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Buffalo District, our people, and our stories. My name is Jess Levinson, and I'm a public affairs specialist with the district. In our past two podcast episodes, we tackled extreme water levels on the Great Lakes, as well as erosion and natural processes on the coastline. Both of these issues cause big problems, and people are looking for solutions. On today's episode, we'll find out what the Buffalo District can do to help. Today's guests are Dave Schulenberg, Planning Branch Chief, Diane Kozlowski, Regulatory Branch Chief, and Phil Stitzinger, Emergency Management Chief. Let's have our guests introduce themselves first so we can recognize their voice and learn a bit of their professional background and experience. Dave, let's start with you. Good morning. I'm Dave Schulenberg, as you said, Chief of the Planning Branch, where we take care of economic analysis, environmental analysis and compliance, and overall manage our feasibility studies and decision documents for the district. Uh, me personally, I've been with the district about 20 years. Um, and I'm glad to have this conversation today. Awesome. Thanks, Dave. Let's go to Diane. Good morning. My name's Diane Kozlowski, and I am the chief of the regulatory branch. The uh, primary responsibilities of our program are permits for wetlands, um, streams, ponds, lakes. So any type of work that may be proposed within those water bodies would require a review by our office. Um, I'm a, a native Buffalonian and uh, been with the Corps for 35 years. I'm a Buff State graduate, so go Bengals. And um, I'm also glad that we're able to have this conversation today. Thanks, Jess. And Phil, your turn. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having us here, Jess. Uh, my name is Phil Stitzinger. I am the emergency manager for the Buffalo District. And emergency management really involves the planning, the responding to, the recovering from, uh, various disasters in the area, uh, hazard identification, risk assessment, consequence analysis. But what that means is something has happened in the area, such as a flood or an ice jam, and how are we going to get out there and assist our communities? So I've been with the Buffalo District for 10 years now, the first five years in the design branch as a civil engineer, and then the last five as an emergency manager. Awesome. We have an experienced crew with us today. This is great. And I'm going to start with you, Dave. Just want to thank you for being here. Uh, it's great to see you. You are, It's your first time on the podcast. It's my first podcast in my life. Yeah, I'm excited. So before we get into exactly what the district can do to help coastal communities, I think it's important that we understand what our legal authorities actually are and, uh, in short, basically what we can and cannot do. So what are our authorities in this case? How do they work and what do they let us do? Yeah, sure. So coastal storm damage reduction is one of the main mission areas for the Corps of Engineers. So there's a number of different authorities that we have uh, that allow us to assist. Um, in the short-term response arena, you know, there's some emergency management authorities. I'll defer to Phil to talk about those in a little bit. In the long-term mitigation or planning arena, 
there's some continuing authorities programs, and, and I'll talk about that in a little more detail. And of course, uh, we have a regulatory mission that Diane alluded to, and I'm, I'm sure she'll get into. So there's a lot of work that we can do to assist along the shore um, and, and to get after coastal resilience efforts. Dave, can you talk about the continuing authorities program? Because I know that's a big one. It is. It's often the main tool that we take out of our toolbox when we're uh, addressing a civil works issue. Specific to coastal resilience or work along the shore, our continuing authorities program section 103 and section 14 are specific uh, to these issues. 103 allows us to get after traditional uh, storm damage reduction uh, issues and to study, design, and construct projects. And 14 is, is pretty similar. It's a little bit smaller in scope and it's focused on erosion control, but often we can get after coastal issues with Section 14. Um, as I mentioned, continuing authorities program overall is, is work that we can do at the district with approval at our division office in Cincinnati. Um, and the, as, the, as the program is titled, that authority is granted year by year. We don't have to get specific project authorization. We're continually authorized to do work as long as it fits within our parameters and, and within our policies. Yeah, I know that's a, a really important ability for us to be somewhat flexible and not have to go to Congress for money for these projects all the time. It, it is. It, it allows us to be much more responsive and, and to have ownership in our district and to uh, communicate with the communities who are having these issues and to, you know, as quickly as possible get after them without having to um, have something specific passed in, a, uh, in an authorization bill or wait for individual appropriations process. We can get after these projects a little bit quicker and ultimately deliver them for the communities that need them. Awesome. Can you talk about some examples of projects we've done under those authorities you just talked about? Yeah, we've, we've had a lot of success in the past few years delivering continuing authorities uh, program projects, CAP projects. Um, just in the past year, we've wrapped up construction on a, a number of these. Uh, a Section 103 project in Lake County, Ohio, which is protecting a water intake facility in that area. We just wrapped up that construction. We're uh, getting close to the end of construction for a project um, in Hamburg along Athol Springs, which protects uh, Route 5, the highway there, and we uh, just are starting construction of another 103 project at uh, LaSalle Park or Wilson Centennial Park that's going to protect the city of Buffalo's uh, water uh, intake facility there. So those are three examples of projects that are actively under construction right now, um, but we also have a, a number of others in uh, the 103 and 14 authority in the, in the planning stage. So there's others in the pipeline and other projects that we're going to be moving to uh, design and construction in the coming coming years. Yeah, the LaSalle Park project, that one uh, is going to get a lot of people looking at it and, and seeing exactly what we do. It's really a highly visible spot there um, in, in that park that's receiving a lot of attention from, of course, the city, the city park and the Ralph Wilson Foundation, which is investing millions and millions of dollars in that park adjacent to the project that we have. So yeah, there, there'll be a lot of eyes on the project and it's a good chance for us to showcase what we can do. My last ask is, can you explain what the Lake Ontario Resiliency and Economic Development Initiative is and how it relates to USACE? And you can refer to it as READY for short. Okay. So the READY program is a New York State program where they are investing about $300 million 
in improving resilience along coastal communities uh, specific to Lake Ontario. Uh, that includes protecting public assets, private residences, um, and a lot of that work uh, is complementary to the work that we can do with our authorities and the partnerships that we have in place. Thank you so much, Dave. That was great. Really appreciate it. So now we're going to transition to Diane in the regulatory program. Diane, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. You were at my presentation on podcasting a little while back, so I have a feeling you're going to do amazing. Uh-oh, you're setting the, bi the bar pretty high for me here, Jess. Um, I did have that opportunity for a little bit of a dry run in the, uh, in the training, but we'll see how I do. So, jumping right into it, can you provide a brief, a brief synopsis of what the CORE's regulatory program is and how it's authorized? Sure. So we um, function under two regulatory authorities, Section 10 of the River and Harbors Act, which is um, a, a program that authorizes, after environmental and other reviews, projects that um, might involve dredging or maybe a utility line going beneath the waterway or over the waterway, such as a electrical line, um, bank stabilization. Um, we also have marina projects, so really any kind of work or activity that's proposed along uh, a water body, whether it be um, Lake Erie, um, some of the major rivers such as the Genesee or um, around Quai Bay, so all those large navigable waters. Our other program authority is Section 404 of the Clean Water Act, and Section 404 of the Clean Water Act authorizes dredged and filled material being placed in wetlands or waterways. So um, what we do is we effectively conduct an environmental review to ensure that when someone is proposing, whether it be a Section 10 work activity or a Section 404 work activity, that the um, project will result in minimal adverse impacts to the environment. Um, and um, in some cases, it may be that the work will result in more than minimal and such um, would require mitigation, some type of compensation to offset those impacts. Because um, what we don't want to do is diminish or eliminate the functions and services that are provided by wetlands, such as um, stormwater retention or um, they can also serve as a wave diffuser in coastal areas. So there's many functions and values that those uh, waterways serve, and we want to make sure that we um, are protective of those um, for both the individual and also the communities at large. That makes sense. You know, water, wetlands are all of our shared resources, so it's important that we, as a, as a whole, we don't adversely impact it in, in effect how it benefits all of us. Absolutely. I mean, it's all of our water. It's our, it's our drinking water. We recreate with it. Um, wildlife, um, there's, there's a tremendous economic value um, that wetland and waterways provide when you um, consider um, just even the shellfish industry and how much, if you're a um, aficionado of, of seafood and other um, fin fish and, and such, um, all of that is supported by the water that, um, that we see around us, whether it be freshwater or oceans, estuaries. Estuaries are incredibly um, valuable. So we would not have that. There would be no shellfish industry if we were not 
being good stewards and taking care of our waters and our aquatic resources because they do benefit all of us. All of our pescatarian listeners are very happy to hear that. <laughs> so, Diane, how does the regulatory program tie into READY? Um, as um, many folks know, we've had um, a series of years of very high water levels up on Lake Ontario. And so um, we became engaged in the READY program as a, um, a joint effort with the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation and the New York State Department of State, two of our um, regulatory partners that we work um, quite readily with. And um, there was a need, both um, short-term and long-term, to uh, assist both private citizens but also those who have public facilities um, and other developments along the Lake Ontario shoreline to be able to protect what they have. Um, so protect their banks and maybe the structures that are behind those um, to assist those who have um, marinas. There's several marinas and, um, and other activities that are related to those uses that need to protect their properties and um, what they have so that they can continue to provide services um, that folks can be feel safe when they live along the shoreline. And so what we've done is to um, two things, actually. We uh, worked very closely with the Department of Environmental Conservation and the Department of State in developing a, a storm response or high water response permit. It was a short term. It was to help people kind of shore up their structures so that um, they, they had integrity to withstand the wave energy to repair structures such as docks or decks or um, uh, structures within marinas and other um, public facilities so that um, folks could weather the storm, if you will. And now, then what we did earlier this year is we actually um, worked again with those two state agencies, DEC and Department of State, and we developed a, um, in, in co collaboration with them, developed a emergency response general permit for the state. And then what we did is we, um, we nested that within our regulatory permits, existing regulatory permits called general permits or nationwide permits. So effectively what we created for the public was one-stop shopping. If they are able to um, qualify for the state emergency general permit for Lake Ontario and the St. Lawrence River shoreline, then they also qualify for the nationwide permits um, from the Corps of Engineers. So they, they complete a single application and if it gets approved by the state, then it carries with it the federal authorizations, and they don't have to come to us separately. And also the Department of State consistency concurrence is also coupled into that process, so they don't have to make a separate request to the Department of State. Yeah, simplifying things is really important. Yes, and that, that was really our goal, was to um, look at the bulk of activities that needed to be authorized that were going to have what we viewed as um, minimal impacts, both individually and cumulatively, and um, provide a means for folks to easily and simply um, apply for that and then subsequently proceed to get the work done. Diane, if you were speaking directly to a homeowner or a business owner who's looking to take advantage of the READY program, what is the most important piece of advice you would give them regarding the permit process? 
I would say don't be intimidated by the process. Um, we're here to help. The state is here to help walk people through and help you navigate through that process. So um, if you have a project idea, before you get too far down the road and designing it and, and getting it all engineeringly, um, engineer drawings and such, because that's an expense, call us, call the state, and let's have a pre-application meeting. That was something that was really pushed in the READY program was to have these early meetings so that we could look at these projects that were potentially being funded and make sure that they were going to qualify for the, uh, the permits that they need to secure. So also take a look at that general permit from the state. If you can design your project to fit within the thresholds of that permit, then you, the process of, of seeking a permit is going to be really very simplified and streamlined. So do a little bit of homework and make those calls and don't be afraid to ask the questions. Yep, even in adulthood, doing your homework is important. So what would you say the first step to start the process is? Would you say going to our website or just Googling, hey, general permit requirements, something like that? Absolutely, the website is a great place to start. Um, there's so much information that you can glean just from a visit um, to the Corps of Engineers website um, and also to um, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. All of the information, um, Pretty much everything I have talked about, you can find there. Uh, the forms that you need to fill out, the contact information. So everything's there. That's the best place to start. Awesome. Thank you so much, Diane. That was great. I'm sure this is going to inform a lot of people who are interested in taking advantage of our program and the READY program. So we're now going to switch to Phil and emergency management. Well, good morning again, Jess. Thanks for having us here again. Good morning, Phil. All right. Phil, same thing with you. We're going to start off with a brief synopsis of what the emergency management program is. Yeah, of course. Um, emergency management is a very broad term. So within the Corps of Engineers, we're talking mainly about flood control, coastal emergencies. Uh, we're not dealing with you know, fires and you know, other hazards that you might see at the local, the county levels. So we're very specific to the flood control, coastal emergencies as our primary authority for dealing with different uh, you know disasters or hazards that you might see at the local regional areas uh, within our area of operations so something that i need some clarification on is what exactly is an emergency right so all emergencies begin at the local level uh, we get into as i had said before during the introduction the hazard identification risk assessment consequence analysis so breaking that up what could happen in this area uh, you know we know that there's chance for flooding, there's a chance for ice jams, there's a chance for wind coming off the lakes. So we tend to focus on those things. We build plans for those types of hazards. And uh, we assess, you know, where, where's the population? Or how are they going to be affected? How is the land going to be affected? What happens if we do nothing? So that's what the emergency management program is built on, really. And what's our authority for conducting these emergency operations? So our primary authority within the Corps of Engineers is Public Law 8499. This deals with flood control and coastal emergencies. Uh, as I said, common occurrences are shoreline flooding, stream flooding, ice jams, wind off the lakes, those types of things. Uh, in addition to that authority, we can also supplement FEMA in case of a federal disaster declaration. We saw a lot of this uh, in the south during hurricane season or even during COVID. 
Um, this would fall under the Stafford Act where we have we can supplement FEMA with regard to uh, the National Response Framework, our emergency support function, public law and engineering, um, basically just using our engineering expertise to help FEMA during a disaster. Yeah, I know uh, our employees every year, a lot of them deploy to Puerto Rico, they've deployed to Florida, Texas to support um, like the hurricane response teams. Yeah, definitely. Um, as I said, every disaster is local. Even the big ones like Katrina and Dorian and Maria, uh, every disaster is local, and then it escalates as the local authorities become overwhelmed. They request you know, from local to county to state assistance. Uh, so that's when the Corps of Engineers comes in and provides that supplemental assistance. Got it. That That's good information for me because it's hard to see the the origin of, of how an emergency evolves. So now I, I know that it starts locally. It always starts locally, and then it goes up. Definitely. Basically. Everything from the hurricanes to wildfires to our flooding right in our backyard here. So, so jumping right into probably what people are most looking to hear, how can we help during an emergency, specifically these uh, coastal emergencies and also, how can we help before an emergency even starts? What what can we do? Well, we're always monitoring the situation. At the Corps of Engineers, we, we are constantly monitoring. We're constantly coordinating with all of our partner agencies at every level. Uh, this is what we want to do is build and maintain these relationships beforehand so that we're not meeting faces for the first time during a disaster. We want to make sure that we're well prepared for what we have to deal with. Uh, so we are, as I said, we're constantly monitoring weather conditions, climate conditions, uh, what could be happening within that hazard identification process and the risk assessment process. This is how we, we build up. Uh, even during preparedness, we're looking for um, material that we can stockpile or resources that we can pre-position just to be prepared for those things. During a disaster, as I said, we're, we're providing that technical assistance, that direct assistance with regard to possibly empty sandbags or uh, plastic sheeting to put over the berms that we're building to uh, deflect the water things like that. Yeah. So you mentioned the sandbags. I know that that's part of technical assistance, right? So what else could that mean? Well, actually, the, there's technical assistance and there's direct assistance. So the sandbags would be a form of direct assistance, just like any kind of uh, material that we could provide out there. Now, it is uh, short of a federal disaster. It is a replace-in-kind arrangement that we have. So we provide these empty sandbags the sand and, and the labor involved with that is once again coordinated at the, at the local level. Uh, but if there is a, a federal disaster, then it becomes uh, a federal cost as well. So I just wanted to put that out there. Uh, but yeah, direct assistance is, is the material that we can provide. The tech assistance is the engineering that we can provide. Got it. Finally, who can request help from our program? So we typically take... Our, a stance that we are supplemental to the state effort. So uh, we've received calls from locals, uh, local communities, uh, counties. We want to make sure that the state is involved as well uh, before we jump right to the federal level. What we don't want to do is step on toes. Uh, we don't want to uh, assert our authorities where local knowledge is, is paramount. We have to have them involved. We have to have them making their decisions at the local level. So uh, the first thing we're going to ask anyone at you know locally is, have you talked to your town or your county supervisors, emergency managers, engineers? Have they been involved with the decision-making process? Uh, you know, we want to come in and supplement those efforts. We don't just want to come in and make our own decisions. 
And just just as an addendum on there, I did want to say that with uh, tribal nations, we have a sovereign relationship where tribal communities can come directly to the Corps of Engineers because of that relationship. So um, physically, they might be the size of a, a city or a county, but we do have that relationship where tribal communities can come to us. Uh, but we are going to definitely coordinate with the state, the county, the local levels in that regard. Great information, Phil. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and informing everyone uh, when these situations, so they know before these situations happen, how they can get assistance. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Jess. So I'm going to open up the floor to all of my guests. Is there anything else you want to add today? I, I got one, Jess. Um, I'd like just to encourage everyone to plan for uncertainty. When you're developing your project, plan for uncertainty, whether it's a, a project in your backyard or a multi-million dollar project to protect significant public infrastructure or even something like a project in, in a harbor or a wetland project, plan for uncertainty. And what I mean by that is think about how your project is going to, to work given um, high water levels, wet conditions, and also how it's going to work given low water levels and dry conditions um, because we know that, that those things are going to change over time uh, from year to year. Those, you know, the water levels and levels of precipitation change. And there's a cyclic nature to uh, what we experience along the coast in the Great Lakes. Um, and if you're planning ahead and you're thinking about those different conditions, then you can be resilient. And that's really what coastal resiliency is, is often about. It's planning ahead, thinking ahead, and planning for uncertainty. Yeah, I, I think, too, what, what I took away as a, um, a common theme of this conversation, um, which ties into something you just said um, we all we all have our regulatory authorities or our authorities in which we can conduct our programs but the real means to getting these things done and on the ground seeing projects built are the relationships that have been established and that we build with our state and federal partners with the local communities every one of us mentioned how important those relationships are because that's where things get done. You work together, you collaborate, you think outside the box, and you find ways to make things happen. And, and so I think that was a, a definitely a common theme in, in this discussion today. Thanks, Diane. This conversation and all of these lessons would not have happened without all of you today. So thank you very much, and I look forward to next time. In conclusion, as Dave said, we're living in a time of tremendous change, and we're adapting and innovating to deliver engineering solutions to our nation's toughest challenges. If you want to learn more about the Buffalo District, check out the description for our website, where you can find information on, on all of these programs, as we mentioned. Uh, so thank you for listening, and essay on.